listening to the Good News in a Dark World podcast. Join us as we study God's Word and discover Jesus on every page. Here's Pastor Kevin. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the first book of the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Three weeks ago, we started a series through this book, and one of the themes that we have been seeing is a theme that we will see once again today, and that is that God works often in very unexpected ways, ways that we would not assume that he would work, and yet uh, that go contrary to the way that we think. And so we're going to see that again this morning in Matthew 2. Uh, Read verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. As uh, many of you do, I love the Christmas season. Decorations around the house, uh, giving gifts to others, uh, good food, Christmas carols, even cheesy Hallmark Christmas movies. Uh, it's, a, it's a great time of year. Unfortunately, though, there are some songs that we hear during the Christmas season that aren't really all that biblically accurate. One of those songs is a a song that you've probably heard before. It's called We Three Kings. And the impression given in that song is that the wise men who are spoken of here in Matthew chapter 2 were kings and that there were three of them. But the fact of the matter is that that doesn't come from the Bible. That comes from tradition. The Bible doesn't tell us how many wise men there were. There there may have been three, there may have been ten, there may have been thirty. We we just don't know. The Bible doesn't say. We, We also don't know if these men were kings. Again, Scripture does not say. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that we don't know these things because the goal of this passage is not to focus your attention on the wise men. 
It's not to focus your attention on these individuals. Instead, the focus of this passage is to get your attention on what God is doing here. In other words, we don't come to Scripture first and foremost to learn about the human characters. We come to Scripture to learn who God is and what he is doing for his glory and for his people. But behind the human characters, the sovereign God is always working to accomplish his perfect plan. Often, as I said just a moment ago, in very unexpected ways. Now, as we look at this passage this morning, we could really break it down into three parts. First of all, there are the Magi. Then there is Herod. And then there is Jesus. We have the Magi. We have Herod. And we have Jesus. Now, chapter 2 begins by telling us that Jesus has been born. And, and we are given two details about his birth. First of all, we are told where he was born. Children, he was born in Bethlehem. Now, this is very significant. This is not an insignificant detail. This is very important because this is the fulfillment of a very old, Old Testament prophecy. As you may know, in the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5, 700 years before Jesus was born, children, wrap your minds around that for a moment, 700 years before Jesus is born, there is this prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, to the average person living in that day, this would have been a very unexpected place for a king to be born. A great king, a glorious king, a grand king would be born not in Bethlehem, but in Jerusalem. Not in some insignificant place like Bethlehem, but in a great city. And yet, interestingly, this is where Jesus was born. And this is a reminder, again, that God often works in very unexpected ways. You, you think about this just in terms of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is born in an unexpected place, Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. Jesus comes in an unexpected way. He's born to a virgin. He ends his earthly ministry in an unexpected manner, dying on a Roman cross rather than conquering the Romans. And he does all of this to accomplish the salvation of unexpected and unworthy people like you and me. This is really an echo of Isaiah 55, when we are called to, to bow before the sovereign wisdom of God. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord, for as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so we are told in fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And secondly, we are told when Jesus was born, namely in the days of King Herod. We'll look at this in, in greater detail in just a moment, but, but for now, this is, the, this is the historical context in which our Savior was born. Herod was not a friend of God's people. Herod was not a friend of righteousness. And so Jesus is born in Bethlehem during the time of Herod, and now we're told that these wise men come from the east to Jerusalem. 
Now, the, the Greek word that is translated here as wise men is the Greek word magoi. It, it really is a rather untranslatable word. It's simply the name of a certain tribe of people and, and could better be translated instead of wise men, magi. Now, who are these magi? We, we hear the phrase wise men and we think of men who may be great academics, great philosophers, great scholars. But the, the truth of, the, the fact of the matter is in that day, Wise men or, or magi were men who were into astrology. They were into divination. They were into the occult, things like that. And as you know, the, the Old Testament does not speak kindly about those kinds of things. And, and because of that, the Jews didn't view the magi as upstanding, righteous people. They were seen as those who in the Old Testament would be put to death. They were not expected to be those who would come and worship the Messiah. Rather, they would be those who would be stoned. Now, we know a number of other things about these men. We know, first of all, they were from the east. That probably means they were from either Babylon or Persia. We know that they were probably very high-ranking men in society, both politically and religiously. They were also probably quite wealthy based on the gifts that they bring to Jesus. But isn't it surprising and, and isn't it unexpected they are the first ones to come looking for Jesus. They, they come to Jerusalem and notice what they say in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When we started this series a few weeks ago, I told you that Matthew is full of Old Testament quotations and allusions. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times Matthew alludes to or quotes the Old Testament. This is another one of those, specifically the book of Numbers. In fact, if you have your Bible, if you would turn for just a moment to Numbers chapter 24. Numbers is the, the fourth book of the Old Testament right after Leviticus, right before Deuteronomy. Numbers chapter 24. We know Numbers as this uh, seemingly endless list of names and genealogies and numbers, and, but the fact of the matter is the book of Numbers is about God's people journeying from Mount Sinai to the edge of the Promised Land. At a certain point in, in the book of Numbers, there's a, there's a king. His name, is, his name is Balak. Balak is the king of Moab. And Balak hears that the Israelites are coming through and that the Israelites are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and perhaps stronger and stronger and stronger. And Balak becomes very afraid. And, and so he brings in Balaam. Children, you know Balaam is the guy who has the what? The talking donkey. He brings in Balaam to pronounce a curse upon the people of God. But the Lord makes it clear to Balaam that he is not to curse God's people, he is to bless them. Now look at Numbers 24 and take a look at verse 16. This is Balaam's final oracle. Numbers 24, 16. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Now notice what it says next. 
A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. And so Balaam, in his final oracle, speaks of this great king, a king who would be associated with, notice, a star. And he would come to deliver God's people from their enemies. And so notice the connection here between Numbers and Matthew. In Numbers, it's a man from the east, Balaam, prophesying of a star and a king. In Matthew, we find the fulfillment Men from the east, namely the Magi, following a star to this king. And and so these Magi have come to Jerusalem looking for this king so that they may worship him. J.C. Ryle, in his expository comment or commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, says this is a lesson to us that there may be true servants of God in places where we would not expect to find them. There may be true servants of God in places we would not expect to find them. We we wouldn't expect guys who are trained in the occult to want to come and worship Jesus. But again, the Lord works in ways we don't expect. And you find this, when you read your Bible, you find this all throughout the Bible. Abraham's father was a moon worshiper. Rahab was a prostitute. The man crucified next to Jesus was a thief. Paul wanted to kill Christians. And on and on we could go The point is that God will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. And the fact that he has shown mercy to idolaters, to the sexually immoral, to thieves, to murderers, and to more is a testimony to the power of his saving grace. The almighty power of God's grace. And but for that saving grace, I would not know him. I would be eternally lost and without hope. And so we have to say praise God for the record of these unexpected believers. These men who were into divination, black magic, the occult, and they have come to worship the Lord Jesus. Well, that brings us to Herod. Herod hears what these men are up to. And verse 3, you will notice, tells us that he is troubled. The word troubled there is a very strong word. It, It literally means terrified. Today we might say something like, he is freaked out. Herod hears about this and he is terrified. Now, now what do we know about Herod and, and why would he be so freaked out about all of this? Well, Herod came to power in 37 BC and Herod was known as, get this, the king of the Jews. Herod was a horrible tyrant. He he sought vengeance upon anyone he suspected of getting in his way or trying to usurp his power. In fact, he even murdered some of his wives. It's believed he had ten wives during his lifetime. And he murdered a number of his sons because he couldn't trust them. 
Well, you can, you can see why he would be so terrified when the Magi show up and they start talking about a baby who has been born, again, notice the language, the king of the Jews. Is this baby coming to take my throne? Is this baby coming to, to steal my power? No one is going to do that to me. And so what does Herod do? Verse 4 tells us he, he assembles the chief priests and the scribes and, and he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. Children, the, the chief priests and the scribes were the religious experts of that day. They were the Bible scholars of their day. They, they were known for their very very careful devotion to the Old Testament, very concerned about knowing the Word of God. And so when Herod asked them, hey, where is the Messiah to be born? They know the answer. They, they know right where to go to find it. Micah chapter 5. They don't have to look it up in a Bible concordance. They don't have to Google it. It was a no-brainer. And we know the answer. The answer is that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. We are not shocked that these men know the answer. What is shocking, though, is that they don't care. They don't care, do they? There is complete indifference on their part to the news that this baby has been born. They, they should have joined the Magi and gone running off to find the Messiah, but they don't. This is, this is a stunning reversal. These men who had been involved in the occult go off to find Jesus that they might worship him while God's own covenant people, the religious experts even, could not care less. This is a theme we find throughout the Gospels that it was often the, the most religious people who most hated Jesus who wanted nothing to do with him but kill him. In Mark chapter 3, very early in the earthly ministry of Jesus, we are told that the Pharisees were already plotting how they might kill him. In Matthew 11, the religious leaders say that Jesus is a gluttonous man and a drunkard. In Matthew 12, they, they say that Jesus is demon-possessed. In Luke 20, the scribes and the chief priests want to have Jesus arrested. In John 5, they try to kill him. In John 8 and John 10, they try to stone him. These were the religious leaders of God's people. And is this not a sobering reminder to us that it's possible, it's possible to have great spiritual privileges and yet not know Jesus? Possible to come from the right home and the right school in the right church, in the right lineage. It's possible to have all of those things and yet be lost. You see, knowing the Bible is not enough. We, we must believe the truth. We must act upon the truth. Again, J.C. Ryle, he says, let us all beware of resting satisfied with head knowledge it is an excellent thing when rightly used, but a man may have much of it and yet perish everlastingly. 
So Herod gets the information he's looking for. Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, and now he, he secretly brings the Magi in in order to figure out what time this star appeared. And if you look at verse 7 of Matthew 2, you'll see the word ascertained. That, that just means to find out some information. But what's interesting is that it's in the original language, it's in what's called the imperfect tense. And, and the imperfect tense denotes repeated action over and over and over. In other words, Herod is continually pumping these guys for information. He's interrogating them. And, and he passes all of this off as if he too wants to go worship the child. He says, you know, let me know what you find because, because I also want to go and worship him. Children, is that really what Herod wants to do? Does he really want to make his own trip to Bethlehem and find Jesus and worship him? No. We'll see this in more detail next week, but he wants to kill the baby Jesus. He wants to murder him. This all is a reminder to us of, of the conflict that God had said would always exist ever since the fall of Adam into sin. Most of you are familiar with Genesis 3 where, where God says that there would always be hatred between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we see that hatred playing out all throughout redemptive history is over and over and over the seed of the serpent tries to wipe out and annihilate the seed of the woman, the seed from which the Messiah would come. We see this hatred played out today in many, many other countries where Christians suffer immense persecution. And that's exactly what's going on here in Matthew 2. You see, something else we know about Herod is that he was not a Jew. He had been crowned by Rome as king of the Jews, but he himself was not Jewish. He was an Edomite. A, a, an Edomite was someone who was descended from Esau. This is the same Esau whose descendants had always opposed the descendants of Jacob. They had always opposed the people of God. In fact, in, in Psalm 137, we are told that the descendants of Esau cheered on as the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. You can picture the Babylonians destroying the city of Jerusalem, and there are the descendants of Esau. There are the Edomites standing at the side of the road applauding cheering on the Babylonians for destroying the city of Jerusalem. And now it's an attempt not to annihilate the line of the Messiah, but to annihilate the Messiah himself. Jesus is a very real threat to Herod, isn't he? Jesus is king. And that means that ultimately Herod is not king. And, and to a power-hungry man like Herod, he has to do anything and everything he can to eliminate this other person who might usurp his power. And, and, and for us as well, the reality that Jesus Christ is king changes everything. If Jesus is king, it means that I am not. It means that I am not the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. It means that Jesus is king and Lord of all of my life and Lord of all things. 
It was Abraham Kuyper who famously said these words that most of you have heard before. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. Every square inch of human existence, Jesus Christ is King. Brothers and sisters, that means that that every part of our lives, not just Sundays, is to be lived with the recognition and the submission that Jesus Christ is King. What might that look like with how we spend our time? What might that look like with how we spend our money? What might that look like with the kinds of friendships and relationships that we have? Jesus Christ is King. And so we have the Magi, we have Herod, and then we have finally Jesus. The Magi leave Herod, and as they travel, they they see the star. It it comes to rest over the place where Jesus is, and, and we are told that they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. The original language here is very descriptive. The author just piles up all of these superlatives to show just how thrilled the Magi are to find this child. And and they go into the house, they see the child and Mary, and they fall down. Notice they don't worship Mary. They worship Jesus. This is the only fitting response to him. It is to fall down before him and to give him the praise that he and he alone is due. And we notice that the Magi bring gifts. They bring three gifts. That's where we get the idea there were three wise men, although we don't know that. But it was very common, very common in that day that that you would bring gifts when you went to visit someone who was your superior. And, And so the Magi, they recognize the superiority of this child, and they bring, notice, three gifts. They bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, why these three gifts? We don't know exactly, but it does show that they were bringing, I think, the very best that they had. Gold was the medal of kings. Frankincense was a a very expensive, fragrant incense that was taken from the bark of very rare trees. And myrrh was a a very valuable, costly perfume. In in today's economy, a jar of myrrh would go for about $10,000. And so they bring these three gifts to Jesus. They fall down they worship him. And as the passage ends, we are told the Magi are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they go home by another route. God came to them in a, a special way and told them not to go back to that murderous king. This is a passage that reminds us again of God's grace to the unexpected. God works in ways we don't expect. God calls people to himself we wouldn't expect. It's also a passage that warns us of the the danger of a mere head knowledge. The religious leaders knew, didn't they? They knew the scriptures. They knew where the Messiah was to be born. And yet they did not care. And a passage that points us to our great Savior, and the honor that he is due. You know, in that day, not only was it a custom to bring gifts to a superior, 
But it was also a custom that the king would give something back to his visitors. We notice, though, that this poor little royal family has nothing to give. In all likelihood, Joseph and Mary used the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh to finance their trip to Egypt and to stay alive while they were there. They had nothing to give back to these magi. Years later, however, Jesus would give himself as a gift to all whom he came to save. That is what we celebrate today as we come to this table. We celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus loved us with such a love that he gave himself for us. Our response ought to be that of the Magi, that that we would rejoice exceedingly with great joy that we would worship him, our king and our savior, that we would give ourselves for the one who gave himself for us. See, brothers and sisters, he has has opened our hearts to believe what Herod and the religious leaders rejected. What grace we have been shown. He is our Messiah, he is our shepherd, he is our king, he is the savior of our souls. May our worship reflect that of the Magi. May we too rejoice exceedingly with great joy for all that has been done for us. And may we count it our great privilege to give our lives in service of this wonderful King. If you've been blessed by this podcast and would like to support this ministry, you can find us at www.goodnewsinadarkworld.com. Thank you for listening.